This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we'll chat a little bit about uh, some new financial guidance from Siemens Gamesa, um, a plans for a Scottish offshore wind farm, um, some really interesting remote-controlled uh, rescue boats that could probably pay, play a pretty important role in um, personnel rescue out on these offshore wind farms. And we'll also talk a little bit about digital twin technology and some new uh, it, some new studies that have shown that perhaps they can help reduce the amount of steel and other materials needed in these offshore platforms, which is an interesting problem to solve because they're trying to make sure they not only overbuild so they survive, but not underbuild or waste money as well. So we'll chat about all that today in today's episode. Before we get started, I want to remind you. Uh, you can sign up for Uptime Tech News in the show notes below, whether you're on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever. And that's just our weekly email update where you can get a notification that, we, hey, we got a new podcast out, you know, jump right to it. Also, some insider tech news from around the web and some other information that you'll find very valuable if you're trying to stay up on the wind energy market. So, Alan, my co-host is here. Let's talk about Siemens Gamesa. So it sounds like... Uh, along with everything else getting more expensive, steel is really um, becoming pricey. And so Siemens Gamesa has downgraded some of their guidance uh, on what to expect from them financially for the rest of the year. Um, Alan, does that surprise you? I mean, everything is more expensive mm. now in 2021. It doesn't surprise me, but I didn't realize how much of an impact it was going to have on the wind energy business. Maybe because it's, it's steel and some of those more massive commodities, fiberglass, carbon fiber, all those prices are bumping up and uh, motors, generators, all the copper, anything that involves a, you know, a metal is going to be expensive. Steel, obviously, being one of those. So the, the, the problem is, is that you set a contract rate in which a operator is going to buy wind turbines for in the hope that you've guessed right on sort of inflation um, and some some contracts have some variability in regards to inflation like they can bump the the final cost up but as a purchaser you don't want that right you want to know what that price is and don't want to get caught in some whirlwind of inflationary pressure so danny you can see how this can turn into a real problem for if it takes a year to get all the components and things together and manufacture something as massive as a wind turbine we can get caught on the downside of that pretty fast and inflation right now in the united states depends on what we're talking about specifically but it's somewhere in the two to to up to upwards of seven percent depending on what the 
what the item is right now. It's, that's a lot. Yeah, and especially as long as it takes to get some of these, you know, the purchasing and all that stuff done, I would imagine that right, right there could be huge fluctuations in materials before it's actually time to, to pull the trigger and make those purchases. Right, and then, plus you have the difference in currencies as currencies go up and down, right, because a lot of the tournaments are not um, necessarily made in country or parts of them aren't. Um, so you, you, there's a lot of fluctuations and a lot of things you have to deal with on in a heavy, heavy industry business like Siemens Gamesa is in. So the inflationary pressures can really hurt large corporations because the profit margins, unlike a Silicon Valley company where the profit margins can be massive on a software company, on an industrial company, the margins can be much, much smaller. So inflationary pressures can really eat away at your bottom line. And I'm surprised in the United States right now, the administration doesn't seem to be too concerned about the inflation rise and (laughs) trying to stabilize it a little bit because it's going to have massive impacts on employment here pretty soon if it doesn't slow down. Because what what is it, what are the things that a, a large industrial company able to do to lower costs, to offset the cost of inflation? Well, they, the easy one is start laying off people or not buying things. Uh, just halt all hiring where it is right now. Don't buy new computers or whatever else you're going to go do. Uh, and maybe lay off some staff and try to just be leaner to lower the cost down so you can get your margin back so you can show some profitability for your for your stockholders. Those are the kind of things that happen there. So inflation, and you, you didn't live through inflation in the 1970s. I did, and it was awful, awful times for nearly every family struggled through that and i don't think we want to relive that if we can avoid it and and seeing these early signals use canary in the coal mines so to speak uh start actually publicly disclosing there's going to be difficulties financially coming up uh, is indicative of where the rest of the economy is going to be in six to 12 months if we don't change some structural uh, aspects in, in the United States in relation to um, government spending and COVID. And the same thing sort of exists in Europe. It, it's got to stabilize pretty soon. Or we're, we're just being this inflationary push that will destroy marketplaces. And we, we don't need that right now. Well, I do find it a little bit refreshing that there's companies that actually try to become profitable right like they're trying to figure out hey (laughs) steel's going up what can we do to maintain profitability whereas so many of these tech startups now i mean uber is hardly a tech startup anymore but they still just bleed cash 10 years later right (laughs) Right. i mean it's like the norm the norm now that oh we're we're way underwater like let's just get more investor money whereas companies used to try to and even nike was this way you know i read uh, the book Shoe Dog, uh, I think maybe a year ago, and just hearing like how they were always just barely making payroll, buy more shoes, you know, get paid for the shoes, <laughs> barely make payroll, buy more shoes. Um, right. And they were kind of like in that transition period when they finally went uh, to their IPO, where they were all companies like that big afterward started to just do that whole like investment model where they just, oh, we need more money from investors. And that cycle never seems to come to an end. Whereas Nike was like really actually just barely making it. They had to get to their IPO finish line to help them grow, but they did it like the old fashioned way for a long, long time. So I applaud all these companies who actually (laughs) seem to have to make real business decisions to cut costs and keep people on the payroll while finding new ways to 
turn a profit and be viable. So I don't yeah. know. I wish I wish Siemens Gamesa and all these other industries that are like real companies, you know, uh, I, I wish them real luck jobs. And, trying yeah. to yeah I, I don't know there's just something weird and off-putting about companies that never make money that are always at a loss <laughs> it's yeah. like they, and well, they don't even seem to want to get there just to have their ipo and have their founders cash in for a couple hundred million or billion and go about their way <laughs> right yeah but yeah i digress but moving on um so shell and scottish power are submitting their plans for a floating offshore wind farm or a couple of them off uh, off the northeast side of Scotland. And this is going to be a large or really large scale floating wind farm. So obviously Scotland has a lot of wind power in general. They've got great wind there. But why does this one seem notable to you, Alan? I think it's just the scale and the how early it is and where the projections are going after it. This is a f- one of the early ones but in terms of a project being submitted but you're going to see a whole bunch more after it and these early projects i think are interesting in the sense that they set the 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 floor for what the minimum criteria will be and you're going to have those discussions about what design features you're going to have and what you're not going to do and what they want to do how far are they going to be spaced apart All, all the the you know the detailed stuff that no one cares about except the engineers that have to design it and the people have to finance it. And so, even though it, it, it's an it's an interesting public relations piece today, what is going to be of consequence is a year from now when someone comes and makes an application and starts to smell the paperwork, what are they going to have to do and what are we going to learn from these early submittals? Because it's a lot of as weird as it seems on something as monumental as this the interaction between the regulatory bodies and the companies is a big deal. And there's a lot of negotiation and hashing out of, of details that will occur. And it's not always pleasant, but if cooler heads prevail, at least you've set the framework. You can have further development, particularly if Scotland wants it, there can be further development of, of wind energy in that sector, which it seems like it's so right for right now. Uh, but if if you don't do that early regulatory piece right, and it turns into a, a mess for like the fishermen and uh, tourists would say, then, then that's a big negative, right? So there's going to be, just like in the United States, there's going to be a lot of give and take and a lot of uh, differing opinions. But it's time, right? I think if you're really thinking about developing some significant site you got to get the process started this is the first of of many year process which is good because it needs to start well what also is notable is that one of the two companies mentioned is an oil company right Mm -hmm. so shell Mm -hmm. is joining uh with scottish power and this is uh so this article by the guardian you know and they say shell has joined a green rush of oil companies Sure. Or starting to whether you call it diversification or whatever, um, you know, BP has also they've won the right to build two wind farms off of whales. Right. Um, yeah. So pretty interesting that they're starting to you know, I don't know if hedge their hedge is the right word, but diversify feels like the right word, but just have a renewable energy arm to their company where mm-hmm. maybe in ten years it's like oh wait Shell used to be an oil company because <laughs> they just slowly slowly you know 
over time, maybe more of their income comes from renewable energy than from oil. I mean, that would be a, if you're a CEO who's looking to the future of one of those companies that seem like you're going to run out of oil at some point and people are going to be off board with with uh, fossil fuels at some point. Right. Yeah. I, I, in in certain parts of this society, they definitely will be automotive being one of them. Right. And, and homes are going to be not burning oil much longer. You're going to see a lot more electrification of homes like you saw in the 1970s, but at a much uh, more energy efficient scale. But as I think a lot of these companies are realizing what are they? You have to realize what are they? Are they an oil company or are they an energy company? And I think they mm-hmm. made the decision that they're an energy company. They deliver energy to consumers and to industry. So it doesn't matter what the form is. They have the the, the skill set and the people to manage large, complicated projects that are hundreds, millions of dollars invested in some of these things. Yeah, if you can drill oil out of the sea, <laughs> you can certainly yeah. make a wind farm. That seems sure. like a way harder problem from right. every aspect of it. Yeah. Right. And so if you have this already built-in skill set and, and infrastructure and uh, sort of chain of command or business structure that they've assembled over time and you vetted it for as long as Shell or British Petroleum or now BP or what they call themselves uh, have done, then you just apply that same framework to another problem, which is what they're, what they're going to do. And it does take massive amounts of risk and cash to to in, invest in these these wind sites, particularly offshore. And so, who else is going to do that, Dan? Do you think it's going to be a SpaceX kind of company or a Tesla kind of company that's going to walk into that space, or are you going to see the older, uh, well-established companies that have been working on offshore oil and energy um, come into that? Marketplace. I, I think it's going to be the older, more established companies because the risk is so high and there's not a lot of technology to it, so to speak. It's more just brute force, uh, narrow margins, uh, doing the difficult stuff in difficult places of the earth. That doesn't seem like a, anything that Tesla wants to get involved in, but it does well, here's, seem like Here's the angle, and I just thought of this in my head just now, is we can pick up like a Halley 8X huge turbine <laughs> – Pick it up with a rocket, carry it over yeah. the ocean, just sharpen the bottom. So it doesn't need a base, doesn't need a floating thing. Just sharpen <laughs> the bottom like a pencil, drop it from a couple hundred thousand feet. It just sticks into the bottom of the ocean and it's ready to go. Like like tossing a pencil into the ceiling of your of your school classroom. So, yeah, that's that'll be my new company. Um, well, here's the other interesting avenue or other thing to ponder from this. If these oil companies start investing in renewable energy, What's going to happen to all the lobbying where they've been, you know, trying to have policy prevent some of these renewable energy, you know, things from well, getting passed? I, I don't know if the oil companies have been that active in shutting down wind. I, I, there's going to be obviously some site somewhere and then which some oil company wanted to close down because there was oil there. That's inevitable. But I think on the the majority of petroleum-based companies or energy companies, they've already made that shift. I think they made that shift about 10 years ago, that they're, they're not blind to the financial markets and they're not blind to regulatory uh, shifts in, in, in governments. I, I, I think they're kind of already on the, on the pathway of saying, there's a lot of money to be made 
in delivering energy, as they well know. Do we want to uh, forget about a large portion of society and and essentially leave Europe, or do we want to make some nice cash flow and have a profitable business? I think they've decided to go where the profit is, and their stockholders would demand that too, right? As if let's just let's just play this out, Dan, because I think you raised a good point. If oil demand goes down drastically, stock price drops. Well, you can't have stock price drop because CEOs and management lose their jobs. Uh, board of directors lose their jobs. They're not going to have that happen. So they're going to try to produce profits any way they possibly can. And if it happens to be wind energy, solar, sure. Because uh, at the end of the day, I'm not sure if the shareholders care all that much. And they care. Obviously, they do care. But do they care as much as if the stock went up 10% this year? Versus, um, you know, are we 20% green or 23% green? I, I don't know if there's going to be a huge amount of argument about that. And that's that, I, I think, is what the important part is here is because they're sort of publicly traded companies. Well, the important part is that people get their money, right? <laughs> Sorry. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, but they have the ability to also tap cash. And if you're going to if you're going to put out, let's just say. Just talk round numbers here. If you want to install 5,000 wind turbines, that's a lot of cash, right? And so you are taking a huge financial risk when you do that in the hopes that that, that it'll generate energy, which you can sell and get you that return on investment. There's not a lot of players in that market. And that's why you're going to see these large industrial companies are the only ones that can even dabble in it. So unless you are willing to group like an Apple and a Tesla and a... Uh, I don't know. Uh, is IBM still around? I mean, they just, they just need this big, large Google, maybe. You start Amazon, Google, Apple, and they say, okay, we're going to become an energy company. We're going to go off and put wind turbines in. Who else is going to do that? I mean, there's really no one else that has the cash to go do that. That's why I think you're just, it's sort of inevitable. Well, two points. One, I don't know what IBM does. I always hear, I heard an advertisement <laughs> about them the other day. They're making like yeah. some other like chess playing robot or something. I feel like they just make AI things that compete with humans and then they call it a day. I don't know what, I don't know what IBM does. <laughs> um, B, but there's still the icebreaker wind project over in Lake Erie. Mm, which yeah, yeah. was being, yeah. you know, essentially lobbied out by the, what was it, the coal, coal industry in the nearby. Right, right. So, I mean, it still happens here and there. Obviously, coal is not oil, but it's still a fossil fuel. Um, right. So, whatever that, you know, semi-evil coal company was that was trying to get them, you know, that sneaky language put in the legislation, um, you know, maybe those people that at the top of their pulpit are like all right let's just let's 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 start investing in wind ourselves and then suddenly no one is in its way anymore because there's still some players in the way but i think you're right right. that shareholders aren't going to care they just want the stock to perform well and ceos want their 72 million dollar salary moving on uh some interesting technology from zellum uh, the company used to be called Offshore Survival Systems, but uh, it looks like a taser, this boat. So it's like a bright green, which it should be for maritime use, especially in these crazy seas. But uh, it looks like if it was small to fit in your hand, it would look like a taser kind of. Um, but these remote control boats can be deployed uh, to you know find a, a person in the water. 
And obviously, some of those uh, environments are so cold and so rough that you've got to really move quick to save anyone who goes um, into the water. But they can there's a bunch of technology to locate them. Um, and this is really interesting because it, you start to think of these offshore wind farms as their own little ecosystem, and they've got their own drones, they've got their own maintenance equipment, they've got their own monitoring, they've right. got you know it's 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 going to be really interesting to see how that ecosystem takes off. But um, Alan, what were your thoughts looking at these uh, these rescue vessels? They can it looks like eleven and a half meters long, capable of twenty six knots in the sea, um, and they're a smaller. Eight, eight meter remotely operated rescue vessel um, can also be developed is what they're what they're kind of looking at well it's forward planning I think as if someone gets hurt on one of these wind, offshore wind turbines that are really even a floating wind turbine that's well off the coastline you got a big problem and what are you going to do are you going to have for every site along the coastline have a emergency services fire department uh, ambulance service stationed where there's people stationed there 24 hours a day kind of like a lighthouse sort of thing i don't think so uh and what's going to happen is you're going to do as much autonomous uh as you can i mean you can, you can park a boat there and leave it there and only need it when you need it that's a simpler solution to solve that problem i i think the the key here is integrating that uh, boat and the autom autom automated features of it to then get to a wind turbine site. Because I think the, the big risk is someone gets seriously injured on a wind turbine offshore. How are you going to get them in the boat and where's the boat going to go? Because I think the, the some press I saw was talking about, well, the boat would get somewhere that a helicopter could pick up the injured uh, worker and take them, fly them to the hospital. You think that that aircraft is going to be autonomous? More than likely, yeah, it will be. And Ori Catapult had a really interesting uh, webinar the other day about sort of robot technology and where they're going on repair of wind turbine sites. Well, everything is, seems to be focused around eliminating humans on the site because of the risk of injury. That seems to be one of the top uh, concerns is someone gets hurt. What do you do? Well, you know you're going to have people on site because there's just some, just some things that robots don't do very well, um, from debugging to resetting maybe to working on the power electronics, all those things that Climbing usually ladders. a person – yeah, climbing ladders. Right. Yeah, you know, I think going down the blades will be one thing that a robot will do unless there's something, you know, seriously wrong. And then you're going to have to put a person on it to, to go do that. And the risks are so stinking high. I was just watching today. I watched it on LinkedIn. There's a bunch of images of technicians on ropes on an offshore turbine at the end of the blade hanging above the water. Right. And you just go, wow, those, that's an amazing photograph. But at the same time, it's also there is some level of risk associated and the what if starts stacking up. And uh, if if your number comes up and you, something breaks, you hit the water, you hurt, you get hurt. What are you going to do? And uh, having autonomous, remotely controlled rescue boats to me seems like a slam dunk and, and probably a pretty good marketplace uh, in the United States, which is going to need a whole bunch of them. And also over in Europe and in the UK, Scotland is going to need a bunch of them too. So not not a bad little business uh, and thinking ahead a little bit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I'd be curious how 
like if there's really no one in that boat, what their mechanism then is to get the person into the boat. Um, and I'm sure they have that somewhat figured out, but in a rough sea where both the person and the boat are bobbing up and down, um, you know, if they don't have like a helicopter or something to accompany it, to lift the person in there, like say the person's like, I mean, you hear stories of just that cold water, how much it saps your strength out. Like if they're barely conscious or unconscious, how are they getting in that boat? Do they have something that sort of extends out and sort of like comes up, just picks them up and sort of dumps them in? Does it deploy a thing that they need to grab and then it'll, you know, ro- sort of reel them in like a um, like a winch system? That seems Maybe. like, like you said, things that robots can't do. I'm sure that can be tackled, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, probably a lot more complex than you'd think getting, like you pull up next sure. to the person, like, great, we found them. The, then the Not task what? of getting them safely into the boat seems like a really hard, yeah. Then very, mm-hmm. like I said, variable task because right. of the, the rough seas and all that different stuff. And what if they're injured? Um, what if they're laying face down? I mean, you can't, you know, that's just lots there's, there's of a lot questions. of questions. Yeah, there's a lot of different questions, right? That but last little you, bit. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to learn. Maybe they have a cherry and, picker, and I, big robot arm, well, comes, grabs them, right. springs them in, yeah. grabs them by well, the pants know, like, a, like, a, like a naughty dog <laughs> by, the na- by the nape of their neck. This picks them right up the scruff of the neck. Well, the ORE catapult. It does provide a number of services over in Scotland that they can they have an offshore wind turbine and they could run those scenarios and that's what like uh, Bladebug is doing right now and Echo Bolt and a number of the companies that are working with Ori Catapult that that infrastructure piece which doesn't really exist in the United States is a huge advantage to companies in the United Kingdom because just like you were saying there are going to be these difficulties. Where do you work them out? Well, you don't want to work them out in an actual uh, emergency. You like to work them out somewhere where some of the variables are controlled and you control them. You can then uh, you know, adapt the the technology of, of the boat to what the emergency, in theory, could be. And I, I always I, I watch ORE catapult and just go, wow, these guys are so far ahead of what's happening in the states. And, and this is another one, you know, having autonomous boats. Uh, is an, another thing that we haven't done in the states yet and we need to do so finally on the docket today uh interesting article from wind power monthly about digital twins and this is findings from excelsos and lamprell uh some european union backed research from them um, just talking about how you know if they build an offshore floating uh platform and then they have a digital twin of it that they can then sort of monitor both and figure out, you know, make some tweaks to figure out how the foundation might perform if it weighed a little bit less, use less structural steel, um, whatever it might be. Um, so these virtual represent- representations could help them perhaps a- more accurately build them out rather than overbuilding it, hoping that it survives. Um, and this is my question for you, Alan, is, is, as an engineer, when you're going into an uncertain um, environment or just it's a new plane, it's a new wind turbine, it's a, just a new structure. How much do you have to overbuild and where do you start to start to cross the line where like maybe we're just wasting money here putting too much steel or too much concrete or just too thick of fiberglass, too much carbon fiber? How do you know when you're overbuilding? I, I think you know that the cost goes up and becomes non-competitive. That's sort of a, the first indication. The, the the bean counters accountants will come to you and say, we can't afford this. We can't make any money with this. And then you got to go in and 
get tougher on the numbers and look at the materials you've chosen and make sure it's the right material for the right application. And costs become that key point where everything starts to revolve around it a little bit. But in the in the sort of the digital twin piece of it is very similar to what happens in a lot of industries. In, in the aerospace world, we take the airframe and we bend it, stress it, flex it to simulate flight. When we quote unquote certify an aircraft, it hasn't gone completely through that lifetime of stresses and bending and, and finding out if cracks develop. That's the big one, find out where cracks or structure tend to fatigue at. Uh, so the aircraft are out flying around and as the aircraft manufacturer goes through that, I think it's three lifetimes of bending and flexing the airframe, they'll find places where the airframe needs a little more support or a, a doublers, or, or you need to watch out for cracks developing in this area. And they'll send out a bulletin to the, all the owners to go do that. The digital twin is sort of similar to that. You, you, you have a, a, a piece of equipment, a tower out in service, and then you monitor it to see where cracks and things are developed. And you put it into your model and, you, and your digital model tries to mimic what's actually happening out in the real world so that your digital model can then get you to a more leaner, less expensive, um, a version of a tower and, th and that's sort of the cycle the engineering cycle of life of build it watch it see where it has issues where it doesn't have issues take out what you can put reinforcements where you need it and then continue on with the next generation there is no one generation you're, you're never going to get perfect on a first of anything right it's iterative everything in wind turbines has been iterative from the start and as we get to off floating offshore it's going to be iterative some of those designs are going to work great and some of them are going to just be okay and we're going to take the great ones and then constantly hone them down now how you do that the less expensive way is to do it digitally, like to create a computer model of this of this structure and, and evaluate it that way. Uh, but I mean, there, there's there's other ways of doing it, which is just to build another one, a test one, put it out in service, and watch it, which is what happens in aerospace, and that, that happens in in the wind turbine community now. So there's a couple of different ways of going about it. You know, whether the computer is cheaper than actually building the thing, if it's accurate, who knows? But uh, you're going to see a lot of it with off offshore wind, and particularly with floating wind. Well, all right. Well, that's going to do it for our episode here today of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, St uh, Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which again, you'll find in the show notes of today's podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.